Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Matthias Roberts. Matthias is a psychotherapist, author of the book Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, and the host of Queerology, a podcast on belief in being. Growing up in the Midwest, he was raised in a conservative Christian community during the purity movement of the 80s and the 90s. Realizing that he was gay as an adolescent, he set out to change his same-sex attraction. This journey actually led him to accepting his own sexuality. Today, he's helping LGBTQI people connect and live fulfilling lives by writing, speaking nationwide, and serving on the board of Beloved Arise, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting for the lives of queer youth of faith. Let's hear Matthias' story. Hey Matthias, how are you today? I am well, how are you guys doing? We're doing great. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us this afternoon. Oh yeah, I'm so excited to be here. We were talking earlier. So, what's a, a day like for you? Like, what's your day to day? Are you working from home these days? What's that been like? Yeah, I am. I am working from home these days, and it, it you know it kind of changes by the day. I do like different things different days of the week, and <laughs> so Tuesdays and Wednesdays are my like seeing clients day. I'm, I'm a therapist, uh, and then Mondays I teach at a grad school, uh, so that's Mondays are school days, and then Thursdays and Fridays are meetings and interviews and writing and and those kinds of things. So, but it can all be done from home right now, which I'm so deeply grateful for. So, <laughs> so where is home for you? I am in Seattle, right in the heart, right in the heart of downtown. So, did, did you grow up in Seattle? I didn't. No, I I grew up in the Midwest. So, was born in Wisconsin, lived there for about ten years, and then moved to Iowa. So, deep in the heart of, of kind of corn country. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really great way to put it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what was just, you know, in Iowa, I mean, Anthony grew up in Illinois. I grew up in Indiana, Michigan. Uh, I kind of feel like there's a lot of kind of similar. Well, Anthony grew up in the city of Chicago, so I can't really lump that in together. No, but, you can't. <laughs> doesn't work. <laughs> I was going to let you get away with it, but it didn't happen there. <laughs> what was your, what was the environment of, I, I take it you grew up in, in a religious home just because of the work you've done and, and your, the circles that overlap in your life. What was your experience like growing up? Yeah, so I mean, you're you're spot on. My my parents are were and, and still are very religious people. So like the, in, in Wisconsin, where, where I was born. Like my parents were working for an evangelical Christian camp, a large Christian camp, it was in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, and being religious, faith was was kind of the environment that I I just breathed. It was the air that I breathed. Like went to church, went to Awana, which was like a place where people memorize Bible verses and get prizes, and you know started going to that when I was like three years old and, and Sunday school. And like, I mean, it, it was really, especially since my parents worked in a ministry setting, it was like my entire life, which I mean, especially in those early years was kind of a neat place to grow up in. Like, especially being at this camp, like it was a year round camp. There were tons of other staff kids and and it was like this kind of community that we had this like massive camp that we just could play at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really cool. I mean, you know, of course it got harder as I grew up, but especially those early years, you know, I didn't know any different and, and it really wasn't a horrible place to to grow up in. You know, it's uh it's interesting. So I grew up uh, growing up Catholic and mm. grew up in the church that way. As soon as you said what you were just talking about, I completely identify with sort of that experience, especially being younger. Like it wasn't a bad place to be. I could think of like, you know, Saturday mornings there were youth group, you know, activities that we would go to or like volunteering at what was that called? There was like a food service program. I think it was called Market Days mm-hmm. or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So like just like going and doing those things and I don't know, looking back as a as a younger kid, it it felt like a really comfortable 
place to be, you know, having that sort of community wrapped around you. My friends were there and it was, I think it was like, obviously when I got a little bit older, things sort of, you know, shifted and it wasn't as comfortable anymore, but I've never really thought, you know, like those early years, that's really when it was, uh, it really was good. And I guess good being a kid, not knowing any better. We, you know, we were talking um, earlier, you had told us that there was a memory that you had when you were growing up in the church where you wanted to boycott something. Can you tell us about that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is one of my earliest memories and it, it just, it makes me laugh at this point. But so, you know, small rural Baptist church in, in Medford, Wisconsin. So deep in the north woods of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And and I, I remember one Sunday there was a a group there or, or something was happening in the foyer of the church of of where they were choosing uh to like the entire Southern Baptist church was choosing to boycott Disney because of Disney's uh gay days that were happening uh, at that point. And and I remember going to church that Sunday and and seeing this and getting so fired up. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I think I was like four. I mean, I wasn't very old, four or five years old and getting so fired up and, and like begging my parents, like, we need to boycott Disney. (laughs) 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 You just didn't see that coming though, but yeah. (laughs) Like, and and like my, my little like five-year-old heart was like, I mean, I had new, I had no idea other than like Disney was allowing, you know, bad people to, like whatever. I mean, whatever the the language was that they were putting around it. I, I, I was like, we have to do this. We have to boycott. And, and my parents actually didn't really want to, which, which is interesting to me looking back. Like they weren't super on board with it, but I begged them so much that that they said, like, okay, we'll do this and we'll do it for three months. But it means that like you can't consume any Disney content for three months. So that means no Happy Meals. That means no Disney movies. That means you know, so on and so forth, anything associated with Disney. And I was like, yeah, 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 we have to do it. And so they're like, okay, we're doing it. And then like we went to McDonald's <laughs> <laughs> for lunch and I couldn't get the Happy Meal toy. And like, that's when I realized I had made a really big mistake. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> oh my gosh. and I, I think to my parents' credit, they, they actually followed through with like a full three months of like, you said you wanted to do this. And so mm. therefore like we're, we're going to do it. And, and, and so like, I mean, it's a funny story, but it, it also speaks to like, that was the world that I grew up in. Like we mm-hmm. were boycotting Disney because, you know, they have one day out of the year where they're allowing, you know, like they're like celebrating queer people and, and, uh, and that was worth boycotting. Mm-hmm. That was so bad that an entire church community mm-hmm. was having this national boycott, which is, I mean, heartbreaking looking mm-hmm. back. Yeah, um, it is. I and I had and I remember the, the same conversation taking place in the foyer. We weren't Southern Baptist at, at that point, but nor were we ever actually. Should I? We lived in the South, and I had to think about that for a second. But the point of the story was, is it? I remember that, and it's just like I identified like who are these evil people that these 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 evil homosexuals that are you know they want to show their affection in public, and I remember thinking about like that like adopting that like well you should keep that like to yourself like was a thing you know, and and I just fast forwarding like I don't know like in two thousand four two thousand five I went to gay days, mm. and, and I honestly like even in two thousand two or two thousand three when friends started going. I felt icky about it was, was the word I'll use. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I had to do some work on that to be like, just some internalized homophobia that was coming to the surface. Right. Like right. just, um, and just how that there's layers to that. And uh, we're, we'll talk about that more, but um, yeah. I just want to uh, jump in on this. So for me growing up Catholic, that I think it's interesting to hear this, that, at your churches, both of you were hearing sort of these messages of these like horrible people and that we're going to boycott, you know, this Disney Corporation and all of this. In my church, we didn't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even something that was talked about. So I think it it's interesting to see the difference between the two faiths. It was kind of like, I know for me later on, when my sexuality came up as, as a thing, is it wasn't really said 
it was accepted or not accepted. It really just was like, just don't talk about it. And I think we'll all be okay. Mm -hmm. So I always find it for myself interesting. And, you know, for people listening who maybe didn't grow up in that evangelical world um, or Southern Baptist world, that it was almost like, just don't talk about it and we'll be okay. So Mm -hmm. it's so, it's so interesting. I I was reading a study the other day and the study is from like way back in 2008 as if like that was a long time ago, which apparently it was. Um, And, and like this study said that 85% of LGBTQ people grew up within some sort of faith community Mm. versus 75% of the general U S population. And, and so, I mean, it's so interesting to me that like, I mean, even amongst in this conversation, like we've had very different experiences, but like so many of us have an experience at least (laughs) Mm -hmm. with growing up in some kind of religious community, which is is just so fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we talked before and you were also homeschooled. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I was Mm -hmm. for, for religious reasons. My parents wanted to make sure I wasn't taught evolution. So, yeah. yeah. And and I remember having friends in our church for the same reason. That was why that they, and and nothing against homeschooling. I think there was a word that when you and I've talked before and it was, the word was fundamentalist was what kind of came up. And I think we talked about how like you kind of like were maybe borderline fundamental. Did you, do you feel like it was fundamentalism or kind of borderline growing up or? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I use that language of like borderline fundamentalism because my parents, you know, I wouldn't quite say that they were fundamentalists, and and you know, I think a lot of people would maybe debate me on that, <laughs> especially looking at like what my parents believed. But but like in my world, like the the fundamentalists were the ones with with like you know, homeschoolers who had 12 kids and wore like prairie dresses. And like, I mean, that was like fundamentalism. And my parents really had this emphasis in, in the way they thought about the world on, on, on like this theology of grace. And and so I think that's like, even though my parents were making really like black and white fundamentalist choices, such as like homeschooling, they they also had this view of the world that did allow for some difference at least and, and some respect for for others, even if that kind of played out in very conservative ways, if if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So with coming to terms with your own same-sex attraction, was that a difficult process for you? It, it was. I you know, I, I had to like, I hear lots of people who <laughs> who tell this story of, of like knowing that you're different. Like I, from, from like very young, I knew that I, there was something different about me. There was something about me that wasn't the same as other guys. And I didn't really start putting those pieces together until I was like 11 or 12 and started realizing like, the guys in my Boy Scout troop at the time were talking about women in similar ways as I was thinking about them. Mm. And, and that's when I was like, Oh, Oh no, like something isn't right here. Yeah. And because of that, like environment that I was just enculturated in, like I didn't have the words for it. I, I didn't know that it was like homosexuality or same sex attracted or gay or any of those things. But but I had this sense of like, oh, I'm one of those people, and therefore I shouldn't tell anyone. Yeah, that's I re- I had a very similar experience, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, we got to keep this under wraps because I know how we treat those people. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um. And that was an interesting experience. Uh, and, and I, and I want to say like that I'm really grateful like, I, I, for, for a lot of wonderful things I've experienced growing up in a, a church, a couple different churches because we moved around a little bit. And, and I know like definitely like youth group, like it was a safe place for me to go to mm-hmm. until it wasn't like around the ages, you know, 14, 15 years old as I started to see like, you know, trying to repress who I was and keep that secret to myself that was challenging. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the good news is anyone listening today, like I am so grateful because I've like leaned into it and I've been able to uncover, discover and discard the things that are no longer serving me and get well and, and be able to understand the fact that how much we can do for ourselves. Around what age did you come out? Yeah. So that's, I mean, 
there, you know, there were different stages. So, mm-hmm. so there was the stage of where I, I guess I technically came out to my parents when I was 15 because m- my mom was cleaning my room and, sh- and she discovered this, this book that I had like snuck home from the library that was like, I mean, this, this super homoerotic workout book <laughs> like with these full page photos of men wearing next to nothing i mean it's just this very thinly disguised homoeroticism it is what it is and i i actually have that book on my coffee table now because it's i mean it's a great book <laughs> but but my mom found it under my bed and and you know like she like i don't think it was hard for her to put the pieces together and you know she asked me like do you have this book because you're interested in getting fit or because you like the pictures? And for some reason in that moment, I I chose not to lie to her. And I told Mm -hmm. her like, it's because of the pictures. And, you know, she gave me a big hug and said, you know, we love you. I'm going to talk to your dad about this. We'll get through this together, which, which I think is, you know, really the best possible response she could have given me. And, and so that was one coming out. I, another, I didn't really fully come out until I was 23 uh, after I'd graduated from undergrad. And, and that was like the, the kind of final public, you know, Facebook post, all of those <laughs> things of like, hey world, I'm, I'm gay. But even that was, was uh, I mean, I was so steeped in, in this kind of conservative evangelical culture. Even that was a, I'm gay, but, I believe I should be celibate for the rest of my life. And and so, you know, there's even the stages after that of it, it wasn't nearly as like public or definitive as, as what like that Facebook post was, but, you know, easing my communities that I was still, you know, halfway in, halfway out of like, you know, I actually don't believe any of this anymore. I believe mm-hmm. relationships are okay. And so mm-hmm. it was a, this gradual kind of moment by moment extended kind of version of, of coming out if, if that makes sense yeah I mean that for sure makes sense I I'm curious so where your your parents they were like they were supportive of you telling them or at least your you said your mom was did you having sort of then this these feelings of not uh wanting to act on it where did that come from? Is that coming from you, your your faith from growing up? And is that what we would consider, what you would consider shame? So, I, you know, I would say my parents were, this may seem like semantics, but they were receptive. I wouldn't call them supportive mm. because uh, like, you know, at that time, that was the height of ex-gay movements. And I, I mean, that's the water that my parents then started to swim in. And and so we they started reading and my mom started passing along things from like Focus on the Family oh, and yeah. Exodus International and like all of these organizations that were literally conversion therapy set up to like, you can change your sexual orientation and you should change your sexual orientation. Like that's what... I mean, their language was like God calls same-sex attracted people to, and I, you know it was all a scam. Like it came out later, like <laughs> that it, it doesn't work, and you know we knew it didn't work. But like the idea of like this is actually going to last my entire life, and I should just stay single or not act on it. That didn't come until I was in college. Up until college, I thought like I'm going to become straight. <laughs> and I'm going to marry a woman <laughs> and have a family and just go on my happy life. And no one will ever know that this was even part of my, my life. Like oh. God will heal me. Um, so uh, like that, <laughs> that like celibacy <laughs> thing actually felt like freedom in some ways. Yeah. Like it's so weird to say at this point, but like it was like a, a an actual acceptance of like, Oh no, this is actually part of me. Yeah. It, it, where instead I was trying to change that part of me. Yeah. When you said, you know, well, I hear the, the, what's the defiance, the, this young boy brimming with, with defiance and almost like intention, I am going to become straight. I'm going to, what, what did you engage in? Do, do you just talk about what did you, did you mm-hmm. purposely seek out things to help with that process? So 
thankfully, my parents weren't super forceful about this. So, so they left a lot of things up to me. So they said, you know, we can, we can take you to a therapist, aka conversion therapy, if you want, or we can go to these conferences that, that were being held all over the United States at that point, and if you want. And, and for some reason, thankfully, I never wanted to, and my parents didn't push me on it. So mm. it, it was like this like conversion therapy light kind of thing. I never actually went through formal conversion therapy Thankfully, I'm so glad. And yet it was the air that we breathed. So I was reading books. I was here. My mom was reading so much and she would be telling me all these different theories of like, this is, this is probably why you're gay. And if we just do this, like then that'll fix it. And if we pray Mm -hmm. enough and like all these questions about like, how are your attractions? Are you attracted to any girls in your grade? Like, I mean, it's like the diet fad of the month, almost. <laughs> Sorry, this is what it feels like, because I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It, it was so, that whole world, I mean, you asked about shame. Like, it was so mired in the shame of, of like, there is something so dirty about you that it has mm, to uh, change. Mm, yeah. mm. And we can't be honest about it even. Like, like I had to make up stories and, and I invented this term. I mean, I don't know if I invented it, but like <laughs> I, I had this term that I tell my mom of like emotional attraction. I feel emotional attraction to this girl that I was doing theater with. Um, she's someone who like I could see myself liking someday and I'm emotionally attracted to her. Like bullshit. Like what? Like... <laughs> I was going to say, this is not BC, but that just sounds really gay. (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) Truly. (laughs) And and all of that was because I couldn't tell her, like, no, nothing has changed. Yeah. 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 And and, and it's interesting as as, as we're a soulless vessel, is that, I can't separate, I mean, it's not, a, it's not all of who I am, but it's part of my being, at least as that's been my experience. So mm-hmm. is my desire to try to compartmentalize to almost like, like Pinocchio, like trying to like lose his shadow, like where it's unstitched with Wendy and, you know, in, in, the, in the movie, I could not unstitch myself from who I was. You have that book on your coffee shelf, and I have a tape in a, in a, st- in a storage unit in Chicago downstairs in the basement, and it's uh, called "Hope for the Homosexual" from Focus on the Family, and and I go back and I, I listen to it every now and then, and it's no, and it's it is just the most butch woman, and then the most Nelly man, and talking about how they found each other, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm not believing a dime of it, and, and but I have to go back and I look at it and be like, you're not crazy, Jeff, you're not crazy, mm, right? Oh mm. my gosh, yeah. hey, w- what a world! I hear, you know people talk about these things. Uh, obviously, for myself, I never experienced anything quite like that. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a gay uncle in my family, and it was not a secret. We knew that he was out. And when I came out, I think my family was kind of like, oh, great, another one. you know. So it wasn't, uh, none of that kind of conversation was had. And when you said that you thought that you were going to be grow up and be straight. My mm. mouth literally, my my jaw dropped because mm. the to think of someone I, like you're in a uh, in a world right this this uh, religious world where there's it's supposed to be filled with love and you know caring and compassion and to think that every day you had to hide who you really were and not being able to have a support system or go to anyone to talk about it it just seems it's so unbelievable but mm-hmm. I, it's important for us to talk about it because these things are still happening today in order for us to continue you know as much as all of us that sort of live in our you know, our bubbles, you know, it's like, we don't really think about this. Jeff and I were having a, a Zoom call the other night with a friend of ours, and we were talking with her about uh, some things that we were, that we saw happening back in Indiana. And she just couldn't believe it. She lives in West Hollywood. And she was just like, that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. And it's like, yes, it still does. So it's important to to call it out that, you know, for some of us, these things didn't really weren't an issue when we were kids, but 
it's still happening to kids all around the country. And I mean, even worse in other parts of the world. Yeah. And I mean, that feels like such an important point because it is so easy, especially for those of us who kind of live on the coast or in major cities to just think Mm -hmm. like all of that's in the past. But like I, I'm on the board for an organization that, that works specifically with, with LGBTQ kids. And I mean, daily, weekly, like we're getting these stories of kids who are going through the exact same thing that I went through. And, and it's, I mean, in some ways it's thriving. It is still happening, which is mind blowing to me because that is so far removed from the world I am now in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. We talked about that you did some discovery on yourself and made some progress when you were an undergraduate, when you were getting your undergraduate. How did you get to Seattle or what brought you to Seattle? Yeah, so so I did my undergraduate work at a small Christian school in Arkansas, <laughs> of all places. And you know, while I was there, I, I really fell in love with, with academia, you know, even, even though this was a, you know, small private Christian school, they were ranked very high in, in academics. And, and so like, I, I started realizing that I was falling in love with like learning and researching and, and, and kind of doing all these things alongside like these really big questions that I had started asking around like, am, am I actually gay? <laughs> like, uh, is this something that is going to be like my entire life? And, and like, I, I, I went to counseling at this, you know, the school's counseling center and, and had a therapist who like, thankfully, like I literally went in for conversion therapy and, and I asked, like, I want to change my sexual orientation. And somehow I got paired with this Christian therapist who, said to me, and this is so rare in the Christian therapy world, <laughs> said to me, uh, yeah, that's not how it works. And sexual orientation doesn't change. And, you know, you'll actually kind of be, I think he used the language of like dealing with this for the rest of your life, but it's not something you chose. And that was the first time I ever heard anything like that. And wow. it was this huge like weight lifted because it felt true. It, it felt like I had been trying for so long, trying to figure out what did I do wrong and how do I change it? And he was saying like, you didn't do anything wrong and you don't change it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, great. So uh, all of these these big questions of, well, then what does that mean about my belief systems and my faith and and uh, how do I process all of this? I you know, got my undergraduate degree in graphic design and photography, which is a whole different world from what I do now. <laughs> but in the midst of that, and you know, I ended up going into a graphic design career <laughs> and still asking all of these questions. And, and I decided, like, I actually would really like to study some of this in a more formal setting. And and because I was coming out and and because I was starting to have conversations with so many people from like the worlds that I grew up in, I, I felt like I needed some kind of validity, I guess, to be able to talk about theology, even though like looking back, none of these people had theological degrees either. Like <laughs> they were <laughs> but like <laughs> but I was like, I, I need and I want to study this formally. So that is ultimately what, what got me to looking for a theological school where I could ask these really big questions and also feel like I would be invited to step into my full identity as a queer person while still asking these questions. And, and that's how I stumbled across the graduate school that I went to. And that's what got me to Seattle um, was, was school, more school. <laughs> <laughs> I know for myself that History, like when I start to see to, to lean more into history and the timelines of of how the human race and socially we're, we're figuring things out and growing and learning. Sometimes with some of the stuff I experienced, like the the, the person who was speaking at the church, really didn't have as much study in actual theology. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like when you started studying that, did that was there any things that you realized or awakened things? You're like, oh. I have a little bit of different insight that I had before. Does that help at all with with what you, the work you do today? Ultimately, I like I, I still consider myself to be a person of faith, and I consider myself to be kind of part of the Christian tradition, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know that I want to 
I have a really complicated relationship with that word Christian, especially now, but at least within the Christian tradition and, and ultimately like, like to say that everything shifted (laughs) doesn't feel like an overstatement. Like I had to work through all of this stuff I was taught about the Bible, about history, about science, because like, you know, I wasn't taught evolution. And so like, mm-hmm. <laughs> here I am as like a, as a graduate student, like Googling YouTube videos of like basics of evolutionary theory, because I, <laughs> I wasn't taught any of it. And like, how do people say this work? And like, well, yeah, of course this is true. Like, <laughs> and, and so, so I had to like reconstruct it in some ways and deconstruct like everything I felt like I was taught about the world in, in order to re-arrive at um, a place that actually felt like I could exist in the world. Mm. Um, I, yeah. I, I, so I just want to interrupt for a second. Is that you use the word deconstruct and reconstruct. And I was kind of really hoping the conversation would kind of go there a little bit because I know for myself that I deconstructed and then for like 10 years of my life, like I was left, maybe it wasn't 10 years, but for a while I was left with nothing. Mm-hmm. And that was probably some of the darkest years of my life. And and I know like Richard Rohr talks about like the need to, to, to we we need to have something now right we got to have something and so the need for reconstruction what is what does that reconstruction look like for for you, you know, I I feel really grateful that that deconstruction happened in a place where I was held by minds that were far larger than mine like mm-hmm. in in my professors and like feminist and womanist theologians who who you know have been asking these questions for you know their entire careers as theologians <laughs> and, and and so f- they were able to provide a really safe space for me to be devastated and be like what but like everything i believe isn't true and 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 like what do i have left and and they were able to ask me the the questions of like what do you still believe and and how do we ask questions that are not rooted in a theology of shame and and like and, and guide me towards uh, a, a a god or, or an idea of divinity that was so much broader so much more encompassing so so that question of reconstruction really meant digging into to, um, two theologians, particularly or two two of my professors. One of whom is a is a black woman who who does I mean just incredible work around race and and the divine, and and then another woman who who really works at, at these intersections of of what it means to be a woman in mm-hmm. in in this work. They gave me it feels like such a gift the ability to kind of rest in in this sense of spirituality can be rooted in love and it can actually look Mm. like justice Mm. which was a again a entirely different world from what i was raised in yeah it's a it's in myself i identify like it goes from a world that was finished or ended or complete to being maybe able to then start to see the injustice and then we can participate in what the world is becoming. We are really grateful because you took these experiences and you wrote a book titled Beyond Shame. What is shame? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a big question. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, I really, really like the way that Brene Brown talks about shame, and and mm. she distinguishes it from guilt. And so, guilt being the feeling that I have done something wrong, bad, I'm not proud of, where shame is, I am something wrong, mm. bad, mm. I'm not proud of. So, so you hear that shift in language. Is shame is a, a, a this is the entirety of who I am. I am wrong. I am bad. I am not worthy of relationship. And even if I was, no one would want to be in relationship with me anyway. Like those are the voices of shame. It, it has a physiological effect on our bodies of where we we actually, when we're feeling shame, turn away from relationship. It's so much more complex than that. But I mean, that's that's the basics, at least about how, how I think about 
shame. Yeah, yeah and then to the entire, I should have said this earlier, uh, excuse me, was the ent- uh, entire title is Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms, mm-hmm. which obviously that's important. I know for like myself, like you use the word, you're using the word we in connection, where before there was a lot of I and alone and hopelessness in my life until I started unpacking this with the help of other people, like, you know, kind of similar to your experience in some ways. You're talking us through um, how to get past, uh, you know, some of these things in your own life, but now specifically with sex and sexuality, how is that tied in together? Yeah. So, you know, you know, I deeply believe that the sexuality or our experience of sexuality or our lack of experience with sexuality, because there are folks like Ace and Arrow, people out there who who don't experience sexuality. So, so our experiences with sexuality exist at the very core of who we are as people. Um, shame targets the very core of who we are as people. So, I mean, I also believe that that like spirit, soul, whatever language you want to put on that, divinity, our connection to the divine also exists at the very core of, of who we are as people. And, and, and so when we tie all of those things together and, and, and when shame, when we grow up in an environment that, that shame is targeting these deeply core parts, uh, for me, this messaging of God hates me. <laughs> and everyone else around me hates me because of this sexual component of my life. I mean, those are like deep, deep, deep parts of, of who we are as people. And so it can create this kind of perfect storm, <laughs> whether it's because of your sexuality as a queer person or, you know, what a lot of people call purity culture now, which was this, this movement within a lot of Christian spaces that, that defined sexuality in very rigid ways that m- most people can't fit into, therefore creating shame. When shame can target these core parts of us, it, it debilitates us. It, it takes us out of, of being who I think we're, we're called to be or, or inviting us into our full selves as human beings so we can actually be participants in this world. There's a lot of wisdom right in what you said. And uh, to think about for all of us as queer people, you know, you may have not gotten the shame from a religious upbringing. It may have been from just unaccepting parents who maybe weren't religious, just didn't fit into their their belief system. There's a, a couple different tactics you talk about in your book on how we can you know, start to uh, understand or move past the shame. Those are shamefulness and shamelessness. Can we talk about those as a way to move past shame? Yeah, so so specifically when it comes to sexual shame and and I think religious sexual shame, al- although I think a lot of this can be applied to shame in general, um, that's kind of the lens that I'm working from in this book is is religious sexual shame. Mm-hmm. There are a couple thing ways that I think we try to cope with our shame, uh, and, and just call these coping mechanisms. The first one is is shamefulness, as you said, and and, and that's when we actually let shame control our sexuality. So, I mean, that's the world that I grew up in. Like, shame is keeping my sexuality at bay. I have to push it down. I have to hide it from it. I have to hide it from other people. And the motivating thing is is this sense of shame. I am not worthy of connection. So, so shame is controlling the narrative uh, in, in shamefulness. So some of us try to control our sexuality and our sexual shame through that. We use shame to, to control ourselves out of fear of what will happen if we don't. The next one, shamelessness, uh, is kind of the inverse. And in, in, in a lot of, at least in my experience with, with religious folks who grew up in these worlds, like often there'll be a time where a, a switch is flipped and, and we'll kind of decide like, oh, fuck this shame. <laughs> I'm going to go live the life that I want to live. And and so when it comes to sexuality, we start using our sexuality to control the shame. And, and we go and the, the interesting thing about, about this kind of place is you know, we actually may be trying on new sexual values, new senses of, of how we want to be in the world. But the catch is we haven't actually dealt with the shame that's underneath. Mm-hmm. So so we're using it in a way to to avoid the shame that is lurking kind of around the corner. It's still there. We haven't yeah. dealt with it. I'm curious, just as a side note, 
then how does that affect relationships? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need to, another show. <laughs> sorry. Part two. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I mean, it can look so different uh, in so many different ways. Like, I, you know, I, 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 I tell the story in the book about a guy uh, who who was in the uh, the kind of shameless position, who decided to, as a again, this is a religious context, to give up shame for Lent, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the way he did this was by going to to clubs every weekend, uh, gay clubs every weekend, and going home with different people, and and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, other than the fact that he was, I mean, he was using that to try to manage his shame. And it caused a lot of relational rupture for him. It, it caused a lot of, like, of, of, for him, he felt like he was, like, using people and, and just kind of consuming people and casting them aside. And, and at the end of that experience for himself, he, he, he decided, like, I don't actually like the person I became. And again, for him, it wasn't necessarily about like sexual values or ethics, but instead about like what he felt like he was doing to other people yeah. as he was running away from his shame. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I think about like some things like with addiction as well, that um, whether it's food, alcohol, or sex, how that these are God given gifts, you know, that, that we've been given or whatever you're, whatever you choose to call it but mm-hmm. and that when i start to use these things for more ease and comfort than the actual asset of what they are then it kind of drifts into becoming a defect in my life does that make sense yeah it, yeah there's a huge difference between engaging in something as a way of embracing connection and, and goodness or i mean we can use those very same things to avoid and <laughs> to yeah. avoid digging in to connection, whether that be connection with ourselves or connection with other people. Yeah. And, that, and you know, at least for myself, I, I know that I was really desiring a, a deeper connection within myself. And then once I got well, then wanting to be able to share that with, with other people. When I was reading your book, it just actually really brought me a lot of joy. There's a word that we don't use that often. At least I don't feel like we use it that often, but when we do, I get excited. And that word is paradox. Uh, and you outline uh, four distinct paradoxes about sex. And the first one to anybody listening is, and I, and I love the, the first one is, is that sex is healthy and it's risky. If, uh, if, I'm, if I'm new to this kind of stuff and I'm sitting on the sidelines listening to this conversation, what would be kind of a way to introduce some people to understanding that? Yeah, so I, I mean, kind of, I'll, I'll go big picture and then zoom in. Like big picture, uh, at least in the worlds that I grew up in, we talked about sex in very black and white ways and usually in the negative. <laughs> sex is this it will ruin you you know so on and so forth and and so and you know as i did a lot of studies both in the theological realm which there are very rich traditions of theologies of sexuality within the christian tradition but also in the psychological world which is what i was most interested in realizing that that sex is so much more complicated than the black and white Mm. And and I really felt like we needed a way to talk about sexuality that actually embraced the fact that there are like kind of opposite things going on. <laughs> so so this, this these paradoxes of like sex is healthy, like sex is so healthy, <laughs> both from like a from just a, a physiological um, in way of of being. Like it, it, there are health benefits to to having sex and being sexually active. There's so many good things that happen. Uh, but there's also the reality that it is risky, and and I don't mean that even from a religious perspective, but just from like a, a perspective of like, there's a lot of risk <laughs> that comes <laughs> with having sex, whether that be you know STIs or safer sex practices or you know so on and so forth. Like both of those things are true. Mm. So how do we navigate that, and then how do we make choices in our sexuality that actually helps us navigate that in ways that, that help us be the kind of people we want to be in the world? I, I, I feel like growing up, that's the, the era that we grew up in. I remember like when Sex in the City came on, mm-hmm. and uh, and some things, the conversations that were being had, that maybe not like getting an STD, like or an STI, like talking about that. And, and I remember thinking when I read this, like. I remember being down in Fort Lauderdale, and I uh, I got an, I got I contracted an STI, and I had a friend reach out to me who I had hooked up with uh, after hanging out with drinking that evening, and he he actually reached out to me and was like, hey, he's like, I got tested, blah blah blah, you know, 
I've got this, you need to get some penicillin, whatever, you'll be fine. And I thought, like, I was pissed off at him, first of all. And, and I, felt, I felt dirty, I felt shame. And then, and this is what I want to tell you that I think is important is, as like, would I be honest enough to tell someone the way this person had told me? Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think about like being able to have healthy conversations about this, these things happen. And, and now that like, you know, I do some volunteer work and I help people and I get to have conversations, you know, with people that, you know, when maybe that happens to them or, I, you know, I remember being in, in Boys Town in Chicago and the bus drove by and there was a billboard on the bus and it said, uh, syphilis is back. Mm. And I jokingly said, I think to Anthony, I was like, well, where was it? Vegas? Like, <laughs> you know? um, and then that goes on. I mean, to, you know, that, uh, that second paradox you talk about is uh, sex makes us vulnerable and helps us avoid vulnerability. Yeah. yeah I mean, this one is huge uh, because, I mean, and, and, and I hope people can kind of think about it. I mean, it, it almost feels intuitive in, in the sense of like, sex is a very vulnerable thing or it can be a very vulnerable thing. I mean, just in the, even in the physical side of it, like we're getting naked with another person. Like there's a lot of vulnerability in that person or people to, to expose ourselves like that is, is, is vulnerable, but we can also use sex and sexuality in a way for like the 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 neurochemical kind of side of like the dopamine spike (laughs) Um, to to avoid a lot of things you know we can use sex with our partners to avoid uh, getting into that hard conversation or we can be feeling a lot of really uh, like deep and dark feelings and, and use sex as a way to, to not actually dive into why those feelings are there. So, so like there's again, that, that, that both and there of it's so vulnerable. We can use it to get to know ourselves. We can use it to get to know other people. We can also use it to avoid all of those things. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up in terms of, um, having to take your clothes off, right? When you're having sex with someone and thinking about, you know, uh, I know a lot of your work is, you know, centered around, you know, coming from more of a religious, you know, side of things, but just thinking about, you know, people who have, you know, uh, body positive issues. I know for myself, there's been points in my life where I've been heavier and sometimes looking in the mirror is a struggle, a challenge. And, you know, thankfully, you know, I'm at a place today where I feel, you know, good about myself, but thinking about how this one act, like there could be how you said, it's just, it's so full of, it's so packed with so many different layers that we just don't know what the other person is going through, you know, especially if you don't know the person or the person's not open to having that conversation to share with you. It's not for all the reasons why they may have shame or bring shame into the bedroom. So right. I think it's a, a really big conversation and just, you know, interesting to think through. Another one of the paradoxes you set out was that sex requires safety and safety is not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through that one? Yeah. So, so I mean, you'll notice like that sounds very similar to, to health and risk, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but safety in, in that chapter, I, you know, I kind of go through like there's, there's the physical side of safety like you know when we're with someone like we do have to at least for emotional arousal physical arousal is different but at least Mm -hmm. for emotional arousal we have to feel safe with someone to Mm -hmm. to experience a psychological arousal you know when you're with someone you can't control (laughs) what that Mm -hmm. other person is going to do there is no guarantees that that person isn't going to violate one of your boundaries at any given mm-hmm. moment. You know, I, I tell a story of a, a client that I had in, in, you know, just so it said, like th- these stories are, are, you know, I'm not actually really talking about like one person. <laughs> um, I, 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 I shift these stories around a lot to, to protect the people that I'm talking about. So these are actually many different stories, but but a, a client that I had um, who w- was having a sexual experience that started out, you know, that he wanted it and he wanted to be with this guy felt really good. But then halfway through that experience, something shifted in him and, and he didn't want it anymore. And he didn't say anything about it, which I mean, makes sense. It's really hard (laughs) in the middle Mm -hmm. of an experience to say something, but he came to me and was just feeling really kind of yucky 
about that experience and, and you know, he was wrestling with like what what actually happened and and why do I feel so gross about this even though I gave consent even though I wanted it and and you know we had a conversation around you know consent is an ongoing thing and, and it actually sounds like you were violated in those moments and, and it was a violating experience and, and so what does it actually mean to to be able to communicate even in the midst of sexual experiences and, and realize that consent is this ongoing thing. So, so this idea of, of safety and, and the idea that safety isn't guaranteed, we're constantly negotiating that within our relationships, whether that be, you know, a, a, a one night experience with someone or, you know, a, a marriage, a partnership of, you know, 25 years <laughs> That person can turn around and divorce you. And, and you know, f- for people who get divorces, you often hear like, it's like I never knew that person. What happened mm-hmm. to them? Like, what happened to that person that I knew? Relationships are, are safe and unsafe at the same time. As you were talking, I was thinking about there were there are a couple times where when I was single and whether dating or, you know, having an experience with someone for one night where... Uh, like uh, it's almost like out of nowhere that shift happens where everything is everything is like okay and then all of a sudden whether something is said or something is done a different way or so- somehow you become uncomfortable and i remember one time i was I, like most people you know i would i would you just kind of like you know keep going through it because it's kind of hard to stop sort of in the middle of it but one right. time i remember being so i don't know if i was uh scared but i knew that i could not be in the situation that i was anymore and i was home so it wasn't like i could just get up and leave mm-hmm. and i remember raising my voice and and you know calling this person out and my next door neighbors heard what was going on and they came and it was almost like I think about it it's like if they didn't come I'm not quite sure what would have happened that night so I there is uh there is something to be said you know for that and also too it's like just thinking about that just this safety of if if you're in a a, a one night situation or you're just newly dating someone and you're bringing someone into your home you know our home is a place where it's supposed to feel safe. You're supposed to feel secure there. It's it's that's what a home should be. And there's something that goes when you're violated at home. I feel like there's something that changes about that space. And I remember that that apartment that that happened in. I wasn't. Uh, I think I only lived there maybe a year. I think it was my last year of college. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that. I didn't want to stay there anymore. And it wasn't just that one experience. There were a couple experiences that maybe just weren't good. And it was like, it just, it, I needed to, to get out and uh, be out of there. So it's, it's important to remember that, you know, all of those things sort of relate and correlate with, you know, with the experiences that we have with people. The last paradox that you outline is, is that um, we will get things wrong and right at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like this one. <laughs> <laughs> this one feels key. So, so I, use, I in that chapter, I, I use the illustration of learning a language, uh, and and this idea of like when I was seventeen, my, my family moved to the country of Romania. Uh, my parents decided to become missionaries, and and uh, as part of that, you know, we tried to learn Romanian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anyone who has tried to learn a language before, you know, there's one thing about learning about a language. There's another thing actually trying to become fluent in it. And becoming fluent in a language requires you to actually speak it <laughs> and make a just so many mistakes, right? Like that's the only way to really become fluent in a language is by making all of these mistakes. And, but, but that's how you get it right, and, and so, the, I mean, this paradox is, is this idea that um, oftentimes, you know, we make things that we would call a mistake. And, you know, six months later, two years later, we look back and say, like, actually, I'm so glad that that happened. Mm. Or vice versa. We, we do something that we're, we feel really good about in the moment. And, you know, six months later, we look back and you're like, oh, my gosh, like, I wish I had never had done that. Mm. And, and, and so it, this, this sense of 
we are constantly in process. And, and how do we recognize that from the start <laughs> and negotiate with, with the fact that we may not actually know what we're doing? When it comes to sexuality, like I believe sexuality is the language of the body. And so in order to become fluent in it, <laughs> we have to have experience, yeah. whether that's experience yeah. with other people, experience with ourselves, making these quote unquote mistakes, we're actually learning and becoming the right. kind of people that we want to be in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but it's a point in my life, I uh, kind of like gave up on everything in the city and I, I moved out to a farm in Michigan and, and I became a farmer for a little while. Yes. And and my, my, my friend, my, my friend who was my dear friend, he was like, kind of like an uncle to me. He passed away. And, and after, you know, he would say to me, he's like, Jeff, he's like, it was his farm. And he was like, Jeff, he's like, if I can do this, you can do this. And really helped me like build up my self-esteem and taught me things. And, and, and I realized I was like, well, you can YouTube anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so I would go on YouTube and Google how to fix a tractor, right? You know, it's like, you know, just follow the instructions. And why I'm saying this is, is like, <laughs> I've done the same thing with sex, with porn, mm -hmm. where, and it's like, just because you watch something in, in, in pornography, it doesn't necessarily, first of all, there's two people involved. Right. And we don't know who, how, what one person, what the other person's feeling in that process, how it's going to feel for me when I try to engage in that actual body movement. Right. Uh, right? I, mean, it's, it, I just, I mean, it's kind of a silly conversation, but I don't think I'm the only person who's done this before, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we've, we've got a limited amount of time and we want to respect your time with us here today. But I will say, um, you have a really great masterclass that's on your website. And uh, with uh, Linda K. Klein, who's also an author, uh, who wrote the book Pure um, inside the evangelical movement uh, that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. And what I did find was really, there was a lot of, there's so much helpful stuff within that conversation the two of you have together that's available on your website. And if you talk about both of you about like, starting out like with specifically for, for, for gay, gay people and also women can, for gay men specifically, how like we almost have like this arrested development sexually mm -hmm. where we have this like, I forget what the actual word was that you use where we have this, uh, whereas what you normally do as a child that you do then again as an adult, like with flirting with gay men because now you feel safe to be able to do that. Right. Second, second adolescence. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was going to say arrested development, but second <laughs> adolescence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's part of what you all talk about that, Oh, like I flirted with with somebody today, and that's a win. Like, mm -hmm. just you know, I'm, I'm not gonna go home and just. I mean, maybe you do, but like, just starting out, like how to engage with people, like learning how to ride a bike with these things. Yeah, I mean, I think so core to this is is learning how to actually treat ourselves with kindness, and realizing that like we are each on our own unique journeys, and there is no prescriptive journey that we have to be on. And, and so when we start comparing ourselves to, to other people, I think especially as gay men, we do this of like, if, I mean, if you come from the world that I came, grew up in, like, and suddenly find yourself in a big city in a gay world, and all of a sudden, like all these people around me are doing all these things that I have no experience in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that can be, that can feel like shame. Like your shame can skyrocket mm -hmm. in that. And, and so to realize like we're learning and, and mm -hmm. we have to treat ourselves gently in that process of discovery and, and figuring out like, I, like for me, like I've never this back then, like I've never flirted with a guy before. Like, how does that even work? <laughs> and it's really awkward and hard as, you know, mid twenties to do that instead of in your teens. And, you know, all of those things, it, it is an exercise of, of learning how to treat ourselves with kindness and, and, and gentleness as we learn. I think that we would want that for anyone, right? We would, we, sometimes I talked about like the things I say to myself or the things I do to myself, I wouldn't do to my best friend or say to me, you know, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. There's a, you know, the, with, there's been a lot of binge watching of Netflix in our home with uh, the pandemic and just, you know, trying to stay safe and be respectful of other people. And we binged uh, Bridgerton a couple of weeks ago. Yes. And <laughs> did you watch that by chance? I, I haven't watched the whole thing yet, but I am in the midst of it currently. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't want to give too much away, but it's just an interesting thing because you have this young woman who they have, it's like the, the women are not allowed to talk. They, they don't talk about sex in front of the women and, and she gets married and she has no idea like what she's like, what are we doing here? And, and uh, how being able to talk about these things and like, we don't just, you know, uh, become a professional wrestler. That person started taking wrestling, you know, 
you, it's a bad analogy, but you know, you start off in the gym, like, you know, stretching and then doing, you know, 20 pound weights and then 30 pounds, you know, right. to get to become who you are and grow into that. Like anything else, same thing before a career, you know? So, so with all that we've talked about today, if someone is new to this, you talked about, you know, the flirting, where, what are some other things to start off with some actual action that people can take for themselves? I mean that that masterclass <laughs> that, yeah. that you that you've mentioned. I think is a great place to start, especially when it comes to this realm of of relationships and sexuality. Like there are so many different practices in there, and it's it's free that that can be so helpful for establishing these kind of practices of like how do I begin a relationship with myself, but then also with other people. I, I think that can be huge. I also think getting into community is so important. So finding people who are maybe in the same process, same kind of stage that you're in, or people who've, who've been in these realms before, who can help guide you through what it actually means to, to, um, to start to flourish <laughs> mm. and, 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 and being doing this work not alone. That was a clunky way to say it, but don't do it alone. Find those people. And, and if you're in a place where maybe there are not or you don't have access to groups of people physically, I mean, a lot of us are in that place right now with COVID, but like, there's so many groups online too mm -hmm. that, that you can find and you know, quick Google searches away of these really supportive communities where you can ask questions and, and try to figure some of these things out as as you step forward into into the life that you that you want to live. Jeff and I were talking before the show and I, you know, I said to him, one of the things that I cherish from my early 20s was having that community of friends, mm -hmm. um, sort of like this mishmash of, of folks. And it was mostly, you know, gay men and straight women. And we were all very open and honest and we're able to talk about talk about sex in a healthy way and talk about sexual experiences or encounters that we've had with people and I know as soon as you said you know like you know being able to find that that tribe finding those people to be able to have that conversation with it really it was so important because it helped uh it helped answer so many questions like Je mm -hmm. you know Jeff was saying like oh you could like you know you could Google anything, but it's like if you can have safe conversation with people who you know and who you trust, who maybe they've had an experience and they could share a little personal insight, knowing that it may not be the same for you. And, you know, right. there's a lot of other factors in there. But just to have that community is, I'm so grateful for it because I know it's helped shape the. I don't want to say the person that I am, but the level of comfortability that I have with myself as a sexual being. It, it's it's so important. I mean, deeply believed we are we are people who are formed in relationship. We are not solo creatures. And another huge one, I know it's not accessible to everyone, but like therapy. Mm. <laughs> and, and I realize I'm a bit biased as a therapist, but like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like therapy has been huge for me, even before I, I became a therapist, like having that kind of, we're not objective as therapists, but like that third party, that mm -hmm. someone who is not in your life on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis, who you can just talk openly and freely with and know that it will be held in that room always confidentially mm -hmm. and who's trained. Like, yeah. So important. Yeah. There's something about um, that person who is up in the control tower, who's not on the on the runway with me, you know, who can't see the, you know, I, I can't see the forest or the trees. You know, when I, mm. That's kind of the saying that people use sometimes that we use. Uh, and also, when when you as a therapist, I would think your your safety, your fears are not being triggered because you're just standing there observing, mm -hmm. and you can help guide through. And also, you've done work for yourself too. You've, you've you know, and so it's like, oh, this is what's helped, and this is what has seemed to help other people, you know, or, if I, or maybe if I don't have the answer, I can find out someone else who does. I, I can't say enough. There's a lot of people in the world that I admire and I, I find like so many of the people that really have this freedom or that have been able to maybe step closer to who or what they're called to be or become. There's something in the story that involves therapy or group work or, or some sort of like writing process or something to that inflection, like to dive within themselves but I, I kind of, you know, I know for myself that it wasn't healthy for me to do that on my own. So I always recommend having a partner in some shape or way or form when, when approaching that that mm -hmm. stuff. 
Well, Matthias, we really appreciate you taking some time today to be with us. We're going to have links up on our website, obviously to your website uh, for your book. Uh, and that, I, I uh, would really honestly encourage anyone, and, and you don't have to be gay, you don't have to be straight, you can be whoever you are. Like, I feel like anyone, whether you're a man who's straight, who has maybe felt like the powers of B, how things are in the world, to someone who is a woman has dealt with things with femininity. I feel like there's so much in that masterclass that a lot of people can get well with. Mm-hmm. So I really would encourage that to anyone to, to you know to take some time and and give it a listen. Yeah, thank you. And 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 for, for folks who are listening who aren't religious, my hope is in all of my work, like that masterclass for sure, but also in the book, like I. I tried to write it in such a way that like you could skip the religious sections <laughs> and still get something out of it. And, and, and so my, my hope is that there's something in this work for everyone. Also knowing there may not be. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really grateful. Yeah. No, you're, you're our pleasure. And, and echoing what you said, because Anthony and I read the book and we had two different experiences. We and so, did. Yeah. <laughs> and they were both good. So we yeah. would highly recommend it to, to, to anyone. So, yeah. You said, I think I love how at the end of the book, you talk about the little engine that could. And um, thanks for, for being a cheerleader for, for all of us and helping us uh, kind of see like where the next step is on that path today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We want to thank Matthias for coming on the show. He is continuing to teach and help those who want to work past shame in their own lives. If you want to learn more about Matthias and his work, you can visit our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com and visit his profile page. There, you can get the information about his free masterclass, as well as his book, podcast, and more. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. On our website, you can also catch up on past episodes, learn more about our past guests, and browse their profiles. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store and browse our online bookstore curated with our guests' recommended books. Thanks again for listening, and remember, be true, be you, and to talk out loud.